0: The Joyce Kaufman podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. You know, every now and again, I, um, I'm confronted with just how demented some people are on, uh, on the left. You know, there's no nice way around it. They just don't seem to have any idea what the results of some of this crazy stuff that they keep putting out there and acting as if it's all, you know, normal. What kind of results it's going to have? Because let me ask a question to my audience. First and foremost, anybody who saw uh, Mark Levin's monologue last night probably went to bed in the same condition I did, which was like hysterical, really. You know, very, very, um, everything I thought and everything that I had gleaned from reading this 155-page opinion by Terry Dowdy, the uh, federal judge, about how the Biden administration was literally censoring through social media platforms, American citizens, and like not even really trying to hide it, you know? And, they, and, they, and they're going to counter-sue now the attorneys general from Missouri and Louisiana because they say it's going to be dangerous if they're not allowed to censor our speech. They have no respect for you, and I just want you to understand that. That's what I was so angry about yesterday was it's so clear to me that they have no respect for the constitution and zero respect for you and me you know if if george orwell wasn't the most prescient writer ever i mean this is the the ministry of truth that only we're only allowed to get the information they want us to get and anything else forget it you know you're going to get censored you're going to get threatened with legal action because that's what they were doing to Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of them. They were threatening legal action. We'll, uh, we'll legislate you to only put up stories that we think you should put up. Meanwhile, we all got taken to the, to the cleaners, right? We all got a vaccine, which, look, I can't speak for anybody but myself when it comes to that vaccine. And um, if I had known, as much as I know today, about what they were doing and what that vaccine really was not a vaccine and what it really uh, could possibly, the harmful effects it could have had, there's no way I would have taken it. I would have sacrificed and not gone to Israel if that was the only way I could get that trip done. I would have said, well, you know what? I'm gonna wait until 2025 or some other time. Because the data's in. You know, there's all kinds of side effects from the mRNA shot, from the jab. And anybody who dared say that during the early stages of the Biden administration and the latter stages of the Trump administration. He doesn't get to walk away from this completely scot-free either. These administrations were uh, allowing people within them, like uh, Anthony Fauci and the head of the CDC and the head of uh, Homeland Security, they were letting them make calls to these social media platforms and telling them you can take Alex Berenson down You can't have any commentary by, uh, you know, Jay Bhattacharya, the doctor from Stanford. I mean, they literally hid the truth from us. Or at least they did not allow an honest debate because they had an agenda. And I believe, I don't know about the rest of you, but I believe the agenda was to see just how much we would, uh, you know, abdicate our liberty, our freedoms in the name of safety. You know, it's an old canard, but whatever you're willing to, any part of your freedom, any part of your liberty that you're willing to give up for safety, you will never have safety. You will never have liberty. And that's what, you know, that's what's so uh, frightening to me. And now I'm looking at the headline on one of the aggregate websites that gives you the news of the day. And this is the headline. Now, uh, you know, look. I don't even feel like I have to make any comments about it. I could just read you the headline and let you come up with your own, uh, you know, understanding of what this means. 40% of Brown University students say they are LGBT, suggesting social contagion. So so let me let me run this by you again. You see, they didn't have any problem. This administration allowing Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the rest of these social media platforms to amplify any kind of discussion about how normal transgenderism and homosexuality is and how actually people who consider themselves heterosexual are weird and bigoted and, and uh, some kind of phobic. They didn't care. They actually uh, increased the uh, the amount of that stuff that was going out there. Some of it coming directly from the government. Here's the transgendered admiral. Here's the transgendered policy. Here's the uh, conversations you're not allowed to have in government agencies. All of this stuff was driving what now has to be a social contagion. Really? I mean, how do you explain? Brown University, by the way, is a prestigious Ivy League university. And... For almost half of the student body to say that they are not heterosexual is bizarre to me. It's just bizarre. You know, I, I could even live with maybe, you know, um, 20% you know, and, and say, okay, you know, 20%, uh, Consider we have to factor in the fact that acceptance is a big part of that dynamic, especially with young people, you know, perhaps in the past when they didn't feel that they would be accepted or that their families would reject them, that contributed to them uh, not uh, uh, identifying themselves, okay? I, I, maybe, maybe one out of four, maybe, one out of five, maybe, probably not, but maybe. Doesn't line up, doesn't make sense, but okay but almost half of a student body at one of the most prestigious universities in the country? Come on, guys, especially at Brown. Because while the rate is higher in general across the country, since fall of 2010, Brown's population, has increased by twenty six percent, and the percentage of students identifying as bisexual has increased by. Put on your uh, you know thinking caps, okay? Two hundred and thirty two percent, two hundred and thirty two percent. Students identifying as other sexual orientations within the LGBT community, meaning transgendered, meaning uh, you know uh, furries, all this uh, idiocy that's going on, is increasing by. Almost 800%. Now, come on. I know the academics are saying, oh, no, no, it's not a social contagion. You can't say that. You know, the head of an academic journal that published a paper that supported the theory of rapid onset gender dysphoria faced a cancellation attempt along with the Northwestern University professor who wrote the paper. She, actually Dr. Lisa Littman, who popularized the idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria, used to teach at Brown University before she got forced out over the controversy because she argued that some of the girls who identified as transgender were doing so because of peer pressure from within their social circles. Now that tracks with the 38% identification research from the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology which found the similar levels among elite colleges. Now, give me a break. You know, uh, in other words, bisexual identification outstrips bisexual sexual activity because what's actually happening doesn't line up with what they're saying. You know, people are coming out who don't participate. (laughs) If this was about people feeling able to come out, then you should have seen the amount of bisexual behaviors increase at the exact same rate, right? But what you find instead is that the identity is rising much faster than the behavior, which means that people who maybe occasionally are attracted to somebody of the same sex now feel as though they must identify as LGBT. Come on, guys. Coming out as not heterosexual is now trendy, and it gets you attention. But the notion is really not sitting well, you know. Um, let me give you a great, uh, you know, example how peer pressure plays a big role in the behaviors and the lifestyles of teenagers. Okay, teenagers pressure each other into doing certain things. They pressure each other into smoking cigarettes, right? If parents smoke cigarettes that contributes to higher rates of smoking in their family. Right, Peer relationships are linked to alcohol abuse and drug abuse. On the positive side, peer support groups can be helpful in things like weight loss and paying off debt. There is power in numbers. There's no question about it. And social pressure is now encouraging at least some people to identify as gay or bisexual or transgender, whether or not they actually participate in any behaviors that would indicate they are truly gay, bisexual, or transgender. This is this is the result of us allowing conversation to be stifled if it doesn't line up with whatever this prevailing you know, uh, open, free, everybody can do anything they want, stuff goes on. Meanwhile, what they're really doing is limiting the freedom of people who may just be as uh, the, the, the second man or whatever you call the vice president's husband. Said in an interview this weekend with Simone Sanders, who I think used to be a Bernie uh, or Simone something, I forgot her last name, but she used to be Bernie Sanders' PR person or, or, or spokesperson, now she has some talk show, and she's interviewing um, Doug Emhoff, who's the husband of Kamala Harris, right? And what he says to her is fascinating, really. I mean, he said the uh, the the private part out loud is what he did. He said when she asked him how he would describe his wife, he said... Um, you know, the most interesting thing about the vice president that people don't know, and and he didn't talk about their relationship or anything, he said she is exceptionally normal. Ex- exceptionally normal? What does that mean? Is that who we want in leadership? Exceptionally normal people? Now, mind you, normalcy is a nice thing. But don't you want the smartest? Don't you want the... the, the the most learned to be leading this country? Don't you want the most experienced? Do you want the exceptionally normal? This woman is one heartbeat away from leading this nation. And the only thing her own husband could say about her is she's exceptionally normal. Meanwhile, if you listen to her speak, that crazy word salad stuff that she does that you know literally has everybody shaking their head and uh, you know praying that they keep her secluded more Senator John Kennedy from the uh, state of Louisiana said that he doesn't believe that English is even her fourth language That's pretty damning right But don't worry cuz she's exceptionally normal and that is apparently now the criteria for being the second most powerful person in the world. Okay, well, maybe third, maybe uh, Putin, uh, maybe fourth, maybe Putin and Xi Jinping are are, uh, higher ranking right now. It used to be, but right now you might, might have to admit that, right? So everything is normal. And being normal is apparently all we're supposed to strive for. Not better, we don't want to be better. You know, it's bigoted if you think you're better, if you think your lifestyle is better. You're not allowed to say that. So now, a compliment would be if someone calls you exceptionally normal. I am so abnormal, I am exceptionally or exceedingly abnormal. Not exceedingly normal. Okay? And and I am extremely proud of that. You know, I, I, I wear it as an a badge of, of honor. I don't want to think like most people think. Most people don't think. Okay. Most people accept everything. And boy, did they prove that even someone with my uh, sophistication and my learnedness and everything else can be subdued by social contagion. We're all going to die of COVID. I better get the vaccine. Okay. It's not really a vaccine, but I'll take it anyway. What the heck? We ought to be really glad that there was one lone federal judge who said, censoring debate. Forget about free speech, because it's not even that it's a First Amendment issue, although it definitely is. It's an, um, it's an, a, an issue of whether or not, as a society, we're going to move forward and have consensus In other words, we're going to debate issues. We're going to come to some consensus. We don't all have to agree, but we're going to admit that the other side has a valid point and proceed accordingly. No, not anymore. We have to be exceedingly normal. People like me and you, we're in trouble. Don't forget, coming up at, uh, well, no, no, no. Don't forget to go to our website, 850wftl.com, and download our app, our 850 WFTL app, because my new restraint, No Restraint podcast comes out. You're able to listen to any podcast of any show, anytime you want to, wherever you want to. And that may become more important to you next week. Because next week, some things are going to be changing around here. And when they change, I don't want to hear any whining or complaining from anybody. How about that? I'm in no mood to be trifled with. How about that? (laughs) Anyway, let me take a quick break. I'll be right back. So all I can tell you is that uh, you know this is not good. This is not good because there's another study out. I think I read it on the Hill this morning that nearly thirty percent of American households comprise a single person. <laughs> I, I I can't even uh, I don't know what to say. Scholars say that living alone is not a trend so much as a transformation across much of the world large numbers of people are living alone for the first time in recorded history. So I just ordered this book called Going Solo because it was written by a, a sociologist at NYU. And it's all about how this is actually the biggest demographic change in the, in, in the last hundred years. And we not only haven't talked about it, we haven't recognized it and we don't take it seriously. And we better because man hum- homo sapiens are social animals and and you know you can look into any kind of uh, uh, early expressions whether it was paintings in caves or the earliest stages of recorded history that say that our species has lived in groups for as long as we've been able to you know find records stretching back at least to 1,600. The U.S. Census shows that solitaries, that's what they're calling them now, now there's a name for this, okay, made up 8% of all households in 1940, and now, uh, well, first, they doubled to 18% in 1970, and they have more than tripled to an estimated 29% this year. Single-person households have more than tripled since 1940. And that intersects with a lot of other societal trends, right? People marrying later, if they get married at all. We're getting older. The nation is aging. Our birth rate is falling. And by the way, people were living much longer, or at least they were, until the pandemic arrived, right? And more than anything... The rise of single-parent or single-person households is a lot about women entering the workforce. And in 1940, you saw a significant jump in women entering the workforce and generating incomes that could support a household, getting economic self-sufficiency. The share of adult women participating in the labor force became half and half, 50% around 1980. You don't really see people living alone until you see women having control of income, control of their own lives. Now, does this rising population of people alone, solitaries, does that tell us that this is a bold new age of independence and uh, we're all taking responsibility for ourselves? Or really, when you think about it, and this is where I come down on this issue, it's the end of human society as we know it. You know, uh, believe me, I know some people are meant to be alone. Solitary living is good for some people. I know somebody who it's perfect for. He likes to curate his own life. Um, he decides when he can go to sleep, when he gets up and uh, what he eats and when he eats it and what he watches and what he listens to. And he doesn't have to fight over, you know, the the, the degrees on the thermostat but there's a marked downside to living alone, especially when you get older. When you get to my stage in life, if you aren't around other people, like if you don't live in a a city or a community, and you're out in maybe rural parts of this country and you're alone, it's not good. Research is unequivocal that people growing old alone have worse physical and mental health outcomes and shorter lifespans. When you age by yourself, you know, it's okay when you're 20 and 30 and 40 and 50, even in 60. But when you get to where I'm at, living alone is not easy. And by the way, there aren't enough working age citizens because people living alone may not have children or people who now 40% at at, uh, Brown University identify as LGBT, you know. So a declining birth rate. That means that there's going to come a time, maybe long after I'm gone, I don't know, when you won't have enough working age citizens to sustain the economy. And it's certainly, there won't be enough working age citizens to support the healthcare needs of us oldies, single person households are going to create new challenges. I think we should be worried about this. I really do. If, if we have fewer and fewer children, which we know we are doing, we have fewer people to work. We have fewer people who are consumers. We have fewer people paying taxes. Now, maybe that'll make the government wake up and take notice. Low fertility rates are a problem around the whole globe. Uh, RFK Jr. talks about it all the time. And, of course, he's uh, he's condemned for bringing it up. What do you mean there's stuff in the water? Meanwhile, I think we can all be pretty sure that there's some stuff that we consume on a regular basis or at least people born after 1950 that's not good for you and may, in fact, be a cause for lower fertility rates. According to the United Nations data, If you look at other countries, in Denmark, 39% are solitary households, 45% in Finland, 42% in Germany, 38% in the Netherlands, 39% in Norway, and 40% in Sweden. So that's crazy. 13% of American adults, according to research, live alone. Because if you break down that figure by age groups, the population of solitaries rises from 4% of adults at age 18 to 24 to 9% at 25 to 34, then it dips down to 8% at 35 to 45. And then it rises up again to 12% and then 17% and then 26% at 65 and up. Obviously, people lose spouses when they're 65 and up. And by the way, living alone, you're looking at all these studies, I'm looking at them because it's relevant. We have to be talking about this. Don't censor this, please. If singles now make up more than 40% of households in Atlanta, in Seattle, in San Francisco, in Minneapolis, and in Denver, half of all Manhattan dwellings are one-person residences. A Midtown census tract, 94% of households were comprised of a single person. Men outnumber women in one-person households. Young men are far more likely than young women to be single, and they tend to marry later. And the gender gap in solitary living closes with age. In the retirement years, women are more likely than men to live alone. Now, of course, partly because women outlive their husbands, and partly because of gray divorce, the rising rate of marriages that dissolve after the age of 50. It's doubled since 1990. It used to be that if people were married for 30 years and they got to be 60 years old, they were basically going to stay married. You would pass on the risk of divorce. No one has ever passed the risk of divorce anymore. And men are more likely than women to form a new partnership after late-stage divorce. It's unbelievable. These, these numbers, these studies are problematic And I don't hear anybody talking about them. And I'm not saying that you can't be happy and you can't be healthy if you're alone. But it's not ideal for a society. People living alone in rural areas aren't going to do well. I mean, think of Seinfeld, right? The sitcom that everybody watched, not me, but everybody else. It was set in Manhattan, and it was populated by characters who mostly lived alone but they, need, they were spending nearly every waking hour together because we're a social species. You know, I'm looking at, a lot of people are looking at Vanilla the chimp, right? They have uh, relocated this chimp that was living in isolation for, I don't know, 40 years or something, and they put her here in Florida in some sanctuary where the chimp gets to hang out with other chimps. And um, almost immediately, the chimp... Became a social creature. You know, they were so worried, oh, she's been alone for so long, she's not going to know what to do. She knew exactly what to do. It's instinctive, it's natural. You know? As a matter of fact, one of the identifying factors in some mental health challenges, whether you call them mental illnesses or just challenges, one of the most uh, useful symptoms or useful signs is people who have trouble socializing, right? You know, I'm, I'm one of those people who really doesn't, you know, for all intents and purposes, I choose to be uh, quite sheltered, stay to myself. I um, participate in things that require large groups of people to get together, and I find myself extremely uncomfortable in those. I'll be tonight at a gathering of lots and lots of, hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe a 1,000 people will be there, right? And it's not the most comfortable place for me. You know, I go because it's important. I'm going to get to hear Byron Donald speak. And, you know, I I go because I support this group, the 47 group. But I tell you, you know, I have to battle my desire to isolate all the time because I know it's not good. Living alone and staying alone when you're a human being is usually symptomatic of something worse. And in my case, I don't even want to go there. I'm better off when I'm around other people. I just don't like it. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, a lot more I have to talk about. I do have to talk about Terry Dowdy and this incredible 155-page opinion. I, it's all in my No Restraint podcast today as well, but I, I, I can't let this um, go by without talking about it. I also have to talk about the idea that we still don't know how that cocaine got into the white house. I mean, that is so unbelievable to me. You know, what if it had been anthrax? What what if somebody had deposited you know some grams of anthrax into the white house? We could have wiped out an entire administration. That's scary. It's really scary to me. And yet, everybody's sitting back going, "Eh, you know, it was Hunter. Oh, maybe it was, or maybe it wasn't. I I don't care who it was. I don't want to believe that people could get smuggled white powder into the White House and not get caught. Just saying. All right, let me take a break, I'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news, Yeah. So if I sound a little bit disconcerted, it's because I am, you know, Um, just the idea that we have now, you know, a, a, a legal opinion, which confirms something so many of us have been so sure of for so long, really ought to concern everybody, you know, that we are being censored and not just about COVID, but about a lot of things. And that social media platforms apparently thought it was fine to censor one side and not the other. So if you agreed with the vaccine or you uh, disagreed or you thought it was uh, Russian disinformation, the Hunter Biden, uh, whatever, laptop and all that other stuff. You know, when, when when you allow the government to dictate to private businesses what they can and cannot share on a, on a platform, which, by the way, has been given an extremely good deal. They can't be sued. Even if the information on it is misinformation, can't sue them. So imagine that. you know. So now we have this new battle taking place, which I think is fascinating. And what it has to do with is Mark Zuckerberg has decided he's going to challenge Elon Musk, not just in a, a physical fight, which eh, is kind of laughable, but all right, you know, people... Uh, Seem to express some interest in them doing that. I, you know, I would watch it. Yeah, you know, I don't know that I would pay for it, but I would watch it. And now there, you know, Zuckerberg has decided he's going to go after Twitter with some cockamamie, uh, you know, threads, which is basically a service which the only people who are going to go on it are the left, and I don't think you can sustain yourself. Either with only lefties or only conservatives, you got to be able to cross over. Which is why, of course, I'm so enthusiastic about a RFK as VP ticket. Just you know, Trump RFK, I think, is like you know, it's a it's it's such a winning ticket. It's scary, but threads really. Does anybody? Do you know anybody who has? Uh, join this service? I I know they're saying that they've got 30 million people already. I don't know a single person. I've asked everybody, including, you know, the handful of people on the left who still talk to me. Uh, They got used to living without Twitter. And they're okay. You know, uh, most of us are really okay with far less interaction on social media platforms. Was a time when they were just so incredibly interesting, and we were all discovering for the first time how quickly news could get transmitted and how we could circumvent all the usual sources, didn't have to read the New York Times, but we could follow them on Twitter and, and, you know, all the rest of it, right? That passed. We all learned how to do without it, first and foremost, when the old owner, Jack Dorsey, allowed them to censor people like you and me, allowed them to shadow ban people like me, you know, so we all said, okay, well, we won't use it anymore. Same with Facebook. You know, I was, I was having a conversation just the other day with someone who said to me, well, um, you know, what's the Facebook account for your church? And I said, well, you know, I don't know that we still have a Facebook account because at one point they literally, you know, stopped allowing us to transmit services on Facebook And it happened in an instant and it happened when I actually was standing at the pulpit and I said something of a political nature, which made them very unhappy. That's all I'm going to say, you know, and it had to do with COVID-19 and lockdowns and Anthony Fauci and blah, blah, blah. And uh, we got yanked off of of Facebook and uh, we didn't get restored for a long time. And we just moved on to a different platform, you know we could stream through another platform. We didn't have to use Facebook. I know it seemed like it was the most convenient and everybody looks at it first, but you know what? We all learned how to adjust. And more importantly, you know what we learned? We learned that we spent far too much time on all of these platforms anyway. That they were taking up way too much of our time. And that we were forgetting to be involved in interaction with human beings. And people were actually, they, they judged their lives and their success by how many uh, hearts they got on a posting or how many so-called friends they had that followed them. You know, all of this insanity, um, which made people depressed, made teenagers like psychotic, and even made teenagers suicidal. And we all said, well, maybe this is not such a good thing for society. And we learned how to live with less of it, if not without it altogether. You know, I, I'm in the media. I have to participate in some of this stuff. And I do a minimal amount of participation. Thank God I have a producer who she's able to do stuff like that and doesn't even phase her. She just, you know, she cranks it out. Not just uh, for her, um, her radio programs, but for mine and for the entire station. She's amazing, you know. But me, I don't have time. You know, I'm busy reading 155 pages of an opinion so that I could talk about it somewhat intelligently. And she respects me for what I do and I respect her for what she does. But I am not going to spend hours on Twitter. I'm not going to spend hours on uh, any of these platforms because they take away precious time when I could be actually expanding my mind. When I could be doing things that will add some value to my life instead of just wasting hours of my life, literally. I know people who can't go 20 minutes without checking Facebook. They post their, you know, what they're eating, where they are, what they're thinking. I mean, give me a break. I mean, granted, I get to tell you what I'm thinking every single day. I have a unique opportunity, but even if I didn't, do you really believe I think I'm so important that I would tell you where I was and what I was doing every minute of the day I just don't think I'm all that important, you know? But uh, apparently we created a whole generation that thinks they're that important. All the time. 24-7. I was out with my grandson and his mom the other day, my stepdaughter, and like you have to take a picture of the dinner, and put that on Facebook, and then you have to take a picture of the cake and and put that on Facebook, and then you have to take a picture of everybody who's there and put that on Facebook, and I'm thinking, like, I really don't want to put any of this on Facebook or anywhere else. You know, if I take the picture, I put it in my files, which, by the way, now you have to be careful because if you're an Apple user, I have an iPhone. Um, I think as of Thursday of next week, they're getting rid of all your photographs, so make sure they're on the iCloud. That's all I can tell you. And the only reason I know that is because somebody told me. You can't make this stuff up. All right, let me take a break. Don't forget, coming up at 1 o'clock, Dan Bongino. Then at 4 o'clock, Ben Shapiro. Then at 5 o'clock, Matt Walsh. 6 o'clock, the WPTV News. And on and on and on until tomorrow morning when Jen and Bill come back. Um, I do want to, you know, just give you a heads up. We'll be talking about this all week long. But starting next Monday, this show is moving. And Dan Bongino will begin at 12 o'clock noon and run his entire show until three o'clock, and then I will come on. So if that makes you uh, nervous or crazy, get the app, and you can listen whenever you want to. I'll be right back. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You can't. You really, just some days I just sit here, and I'm amazed at how ridiculous Um, what's going on is and how we're not paying any attention. You know, all these protests that have been going on in Europe, um, we now have seen the Dutch government totally collapsed when the four ruling coalition parties couldn't agree on a new asylum policy. The uh, prime minister, Mark Rutt, who, by the way, was the longest-serving prime minister in the Netherlands, he met with the king and then... Handed him his resignation, but said, "I'll, I'll, you know, I'll hang in there until you have new elections, which won't be until November." But this is all about unbridled immigration, right? That's what it's about, and that's why you gotta you gotta pay attention to what's happening all around the world. It's not enough for us just to look at what's happening here. After years of negotiations, the EU, the European Union they reached an agreement to manage all these soaring asylum claims and they called it the New Pact on Migration and Asylum, okay? And, and these are, you know, these home affairs ministers of each of the member nations. You had to have a two-thirds majority to pass it. It was hardly a unanimous vote that took place. But you look at this... And you see that if we don't start looking at what we're going to do with all the asylum applications that this president has allowed uh, to come into our country, we're going to be looking at the same riots as they're having in France, as they had in the Netherlands. You know, the only countries, by the way, that aren't having them are like Poland and Hungary where they put up walls and told the the rest of the European Union that uh, no, we're not allowing anybody who wants to come into our country to come into our country you know it's a violation of national sovereignty why can't we say that it seems like the eu leadership totally underestimated the degree to which countries in central and eastern europe who you know who got rid of the yoke that the soviet union had over them for 3 decades they're not willing to accept Unlimited migrants coming across the border who don't even have valid asylum claims. You know, Poland accepted about, I don't know, over a million refugees from the Ukraine with more surely on the way. But that's, you know, that's people who are very similar in culture to them, adjacent to them. Not people who are streaming in from Northern Africa and the Middle East, you know, look at the populations in these European countries where they've had unbridled illegal immigration from countries that basically have completely different cultures and societal norms, you know. It's fascinating to me. Well, there's, uh, you know, 40% of the students at Brown University are now saying that they're not heterosexual, okay. Why don't you try that in some of these countries where all of these illegal immigrants are pouring into Europe come from? Try telling them that you are not uh, a heterosexual. You could be thrown off the roof of a building. You will definitely uh, be in big time trouble. But see, people don't see any, any, they don't see any parallels. And they just keep saying, well, you know, we have these, uh, you know, people who need to get a better way of life, and people are just trying to improve the living, you know, wages for their families, and uh, they're coming across, and for the most part, they're hardworking, decent. We just had another terrorist sneak across the border. That's not in the news. It's not above the fold. No, 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 no. Above the fold is 40% of students at Brown University now say that they are um, LGBT. That's above the fold. That's the big story. Not how white powder got into our White House and they don't know how it got there and they don't know who left it there even though someone like me, I'm not a scientist, but I certainly know that white powder could be something other than cocaine, right? It happens that it turns out to be an illegal substance, but what if it was anthrax? We really can't figure out how it got there and who put it there? Not a good look, not a good look. Anyway, I thank you for your time this time until next time, and my plan is to be back here tomorrow at noon if it be his will and he delays his coming. Remember what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. And start making it part of your thinking process to download the 850 app so that no matter what time of day I'm on, and starting next Monday, it'll be a different time of day. I'll be on at three o'clock.